Today's program was brought to you by VisitNapaValley.com, the official page for travel to the Napa Valley, America's legendary wine, food, arts, and wellness capital. For more information, visit www.VisitNapaValley.com. I'm Brianna Kurtz, host of Eat Your Words. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, and today we have a special guest here. We have Christoph Hedges, uh, the custodian of the family winery, the Hedges Family Winery, uh, in the Red Mountain AVA of Washington State. This is a winery that we've had uh, pretty much on the on the list uh, at La Picho since we opened. Uh, we're big fans of, uh, of these wines and uh, big fans of uh, Christoph's as well. Welcome to In the Drink. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate it. And uh, yes, uh, I like to use the word custodian in a more historical sense. So <laughs> thank you for highlighting that. Yeah. So, what what is a custodian? What do you do? How did you get into this? Is a, a family operation? Uh, I believe you guys just had your twenty fifth uh, vintage. Um, so, sort of on the early on, what maybe first or second wave of, of wine growers in uh, in Washington State. Um, when uh, when when you were a kid, it was just always something that that was uh, you know you knew you were going to work with the family uh, the family winery. Well, you know, I didn't. Um let me let me give you some context first. Uh, French mother from Champagne, uh, American father, uh, specifically from from the Red Mountain region. They meet in Mexico. Uh, mother grew up in a uh, wine drinking family for sure uh, in Champagne, drinking all, you know, all sorts of French wine. Uh, long story short, um, uh, I think I was an accident in Mexico. I was born in Arizona. And uh, uh, as the first male heir of their <laughs> of their uh, togetherness, um, I think they they've always wanted to have an agricultural business. Um, they never pressured me into it. Uh, uh, neither my sister uh, as well. Um, but I think you know this is something uh, historical that uh, it, it's sort of a rite of passage in a sense. Um, being able to work with the land, especially in the platform of, of viticulture it's it's quite quite nice and uh, I, I believe in your in your youth you lived in south america for a while how, how does this all how yeah. does everyone find the red mountain ava of washington uh, coming from champagne and south america yeah. and just being all over the world how do, how do they find this one very particular place well that's a good question i mean this is all before the internet so it makes it a lot more difficult right to find these kinds of places my dad was born in a town called benton city um or not Benton City, I'm so sorry. That <laughs> Richland, Washington, which is not far from Benton City. Um, it was a government town, uh, sort of spurred up by the uh, Hanford uh, Department of Energy. So for became famous for uh, developing, I think, the uranium for the uh, atom bomb, believe it or not. So this was sort of a government town, and he was from there. Uh, he wanted to get out. Uh, there's not a lot going on there except for dryland wheat. Uh, you have cherries, apples. Um, Relative to that, I think my mom sort of grew up in that same sort of uh, environment, uh, but but in Europe. And so, you know, you take two people who grew up in these really small towns, 
um, and they're what we call the, the, the baby boomer generation. Um, so they have access to the radio and magazines and stuff, and they want to go and see the world. Um, so they, they meet, uh, but eventually, uh, you know, when they decide to form their own company, and this is, of course, after they had worked in the banana business. Yes, we did live in Buenos Aires. We worked in the potato business. Um, but when they, they wanted to go back into uh, agriculture on their own, um, a lot of land prices, uh, whether it be in California or in France, are very expensive. You know, So Washington State was sort of this uh, uh, very good value as far as um, you know, if you want to put uh, wine grapes. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it just... It's sort of the Wild West, for sure. I think I, I still consider it like missionary work. You know, it's a, <laughs> a low population, um, somewhat of a, a lower sort of cultural understanding of the global uh, concept of wine. Um, but more and more, even in, even in the local town, Benton City, I'm seeing people starting to drink wine at lunch, which, which is really nice. That's that's cool. I mean, it's rare in you know even in New York to, today to see people drinking wine at lunch. I uh, actually just the idea of eating out for lunch is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, last time you were in town, we we had a, a really lovely meal at, at Charlie Bird, and uh, very much in the the European and I guess Benton City style had had some delicious wine at lunch. But um, yeah. that that's I mean that that's pretty promising to see. Is there is there a restaurant and hotel? industry there that might bring some wine tourism or is that also something that that's maybe lagging behind a little bit oh no for sure it's lagging behind um i i right now we have like any sort of uh un sort of developed place you still have the the larger corporations you know so chain restaurants uh, chain hotels but you're seeing this sort of um, uh, growth of, of the vrbo um, you know or airbnb type uh, thing where where people are renting out parts of their house uh, for wine tours so they don't have to sleep in a in a motel you know and kill the romance after a day of wine wine drinking so that, that's starting to happen. Okay, so you're you're brought up in this um, uh, sounds like a, just a super interesting family life. You're you know li- lived in South America as a kid, uh, a European mother um, involved in agriculture and and, and travel. Um, and then, and then you went to uh, you went to college in in California. And after college, tell me if this is true. I read this in your bio that you actually were a bull rider for uh, a period of time. I mean, from from the the last time that we met, and, and uh, which was the only time that we met, I, uh, I had this impression of you as someone who's very uh, thoughtful and sensitive. Uh, very, uh, very smart, and not that bull riders aren't th- aren't these <laughs> things, um, but someone as as someone who's maybe more in, in tune with their like emotions and sensitive side, and and very thought provoked. You know, the, your approach to to wine um, is uh, one of of soul and connectivity to the place. And to me, the idea of a bull rider, this kind of like visceral adrenaline did this really happen is it true are you a bull rider uh yes i agree with all your statements that you just said <laughs> I, i'm not gonna lie on that but yeah i you know it's funny uh people ask me that all the time it's like wow you were a professional bull rider uh what we like to call it in the in the rodeo trade is uh we were rough stock uh guys so we um i rode everything from bulls to uh saddle bronc uh was one event i did as well and uh bareback um, I represented uh, the town of Benton City, which is uh, just below our our, uh, our lovely little AVA. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
To be honest with you, I, I did it because of uh, I was sort of needing that Americana infusion in my life, I think. Um, I have dual citizenship, uh, French and American, and I grew up, uh, I'd say, the, the pertinent years um, in the summer uh, in France, uh, along with my sister as well. My mother would take us there for months at a time. Um, so I wanted to see what it was like to really get into that American spirit of things. <clears throat> my grandfather, who's French, uh, the French grandfather, he, uh, he was a big uh, cowboy at heart, um, even though his, uh, the, the mayor in the town uh, or the, some of the towns surrounding them are all socialists. Uh, the fact is, is he loved that American you know, sense of freedom and idealism and, and Western. So I wanted to dive into it and see what it was like, and I figured, God, there's no better way to do it than, than join the professional rodeo circuit. And how long did that last for? One year. One year. Yeah, the injuries were, well, uh, can really get to you after Ooh. a year. Yeah, it's, it can be tough. Yeah, I mean, not knowing anything about it, it's been you know it's been on the on TV increasingly lately. Lately, you see uh, professional bull riding. It looks to me, and hopefully you'll uh, you'll you'll tell me I'm I'm wrong that this is a a, a, a torturous thing for the the bull. He, he does not look like he's happy to have a a person hanging on to his back very, <laughs> for a very long time, trying to get get him off and. Uh, and the the bull rider is is thrown around like a little rag doll. Yes, uh, yeah. is it, you know d- are the are the bulls treated nicely? <laughs> At- um, you know, I have a lot of respect for the bulls. Um, I and, and same with the horses too. You know, it's it's <laughs> there's a little secret. I mean, they're uh, to be honest with you, their testicles are tied up as well, so they're constantly trying to get this itch off of them. <laughs> wow! And that creates a lot of the 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 sort of. Uh, violent bucking that you see by I'd these be animals. Off too, yeah. yeah, you'd be pissed off. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, sure. You'd be like, I want, I want this up. Yeah. And then, of course, there's this human on on top of you who the bull is probably associating with this with this uncomfortable feeling. Mm-hmm. So the first thing they're going to do as soon as you get off is go right for you, and then therefore you have the uh, uh, the rodeo clowns. You know, they they can save your life. Um, I tell you, but when I was doing it back in uh, 2001, um, I never wore helmets. Or mouth guard or anything like that. I, I just wore a hat and uh, packed a big dip in my mouth and, and just went for it. Wow. So And I, dang, I definitely drank, uh, well, probably wasn't wine. I think it was more like tequila. But uh, that always sort of uh, soothed the soul before you got in the A little the liquid of, courage. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And then it was after that, had you kind of quelled your, your thirst for adventurism? And what was your next step? Well, I think halfway through it, I was I was trying to find a wife, uh, but uh, quickly realized um, the women who who watch a lot of this, at least back in my circuit, weren't quite the uh, the stock that I was looking for. So, um, I liked wine, of course. You know, I mean, I think uh, I think that's the first question a man always asks a woman uh, in the wine is, do you, do you what kind of wine do you like? And they go, oh, I like Bud Light. You know, so <laughs> it was it. So I, you know, after the injuries and, and failing to find uh, um, a mate, I. Um, I settled back down a little bit, you know. I I, uh, I moved uh, to to the Red Mountain, and I found uh, I found some land. Um, I I bought land, planted a vineyard. Finally met uh, my current wife, and um, we are now happily you know married and farm grapes and have two kids. Great. And now was this current the vineyard that you planted under the same label as the Hedges family, or is that something separate? No, this is separate. Um, I, I wanted to experience what it was like for my parents when they were in their 30s to to dive into the wine business, um, 
full throttle. So I, I wanted to start from the ground up. What is it like to plant a vineyard? You know, you see all these things in, in Europe and uh, these estates. I wanted to know physically what these things... I'm, I'm very into the physical aspects of, of starting things. You know, I want to know, like, what propels someone to really go in and go, I'm going to be a farmer today. Yeah. You know, and, and, I, and we did it. And it was... And it was Quite a ride, quite a journey. Another one of your physical ventures that I, I read about is that you're you're building your own house. That's correct. Yeah, I'm still building it actually after after six years out of uh, out of cementious base materials, stone, uh, you name it, anything that uh, uh, is not um, a dead tree carcass. I'm, I'm using. Wow. <laughs> Do you have an ETA as to one? How long, how long is that? I can't even imagine what that would take to build a house well you know uh part of it is uh, love for for architecture growing up in europe um you marvel at these churches and how they were built and and uh my hobby is to study study this um i'm by no means a, a brilliant architect or anything like that i'm, I'm just a humble stonemason. uh but to be able to do that on your own land um using uh materials that are available or, or you know a delivery of broken up concrete and, and using that and mortaring them together and creating something that has that historical look is is fascinating i i also was totally addicted to playing with legos when i was a kid i think i think maybe we all were at some point you know um and uh yeah my house is you know kind of looks like uh, a sort of war-torn bosnian look at this moment um lots of rebar sticking out and, and stuff so i i do follow the code <laughs> yeah yeah on a recent trip to uh greece i saw tons of rebar all over the place uh beautiful Greek landscape and then rebar and apparently there's uh, uh, some kind of scheme where if you if you start the build then you get a huge tax break and so like everyone had like started building uh, just to get this huge tax break. <laughs> a, actually, I didn't know about that. I'm going to look into that in my area. I mean, that sounds advantageous. <laughs> yeah, I, hope, yeah. I, I don't know if it's working out so well for the whole Greek economy, but uh, certainly some people are taking advantage. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Christoph about, uh, well, first we're going to taste three wines. We're going to talk to him about his ideas uh, on wine scoring and uh, biodynamic farming in Washington. brought to you by visitnapavalley.com. Welcome to the Napa Valley, North America's legendary wine and food capital, where the art of living well is defined and each season holds a story waiting to be discovered. Life feels slower here, lived at a place where tables are set with care. Fine wine and food are created from the bounty of our own vineyards and gardens, and relationships with friends and family gathered around the table are somehow sweeter. When planning a trip to the Napa Valley, we invite you to visit the destination's official visitor website, visitnapavalley.com, or stop by Napa County's official visitor information center, located in downtown Napa, where our friendly and knowledgeable community ambassadors can assist you in creating your own legendary Napa Valley experiences. 
The Visitor Information Center is located at 600 Main Street in Napa and is open from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., seven days a week, 360 days a year. Your invitation to experience the Napa Valley beckons. Take a deep breath, lose yourself in our quiet green and golden hills, renew your body and spirit, taste our legendary wines and cuisine, and experience the people who make this valley like no other in the world. For more information, go to visitnapavalley.com. All right, and we're back with Christoph Hedges from Hedges Winery in the Red Mountain AVA of Washington. Um, let's pop open some of these wines, and uh, while we do so, Christoph, I want to talk to you about your ideas on uh, wine scoring. Um, I know that your family and you've never or have, haven't submitted wines for for scoring at least in the past ten years or so. And beyond just not submitting, you have some some real strong opinions on this. Uh, um, I remember when you you did the presentation to our staff, gave out uh, actual stickers that said, "I do not uh, hang out with people who drink hundred point wines," which was actually a hit among, <laughs> amongst uh, amongst the staff at my restaurant. But where, what are what are where did these ideas uh, come from, and what how, what are your feelings on uh, on why wine scoring is uh, is so evil? Well, first off, I, you know I want to tell you I don't believe in totalitarian dictatorships, um, and I think that. The wine scoring world has always been ruled by by sort of an elite few. Um, now, you know, I'm not going to lie; I'm a capitalist. I, you know, I, I totally agree in the American system. But when it comes to to art, when it comes to things that are subjective, um, the application of a static symbol to represent uh, 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 an ever evolving uh, produce um, like wine is, to me, completely backwards. I mean, even after 10 minutes of, of a wine um, uh, being engulfed in oxygen, it changes. So does the score change as well? You know, and, and the assumption of the system uh, means that uh, there is a perfect score. Now, if there's a perfect score, what does that tell you about something that's ever-changing? Is it ever-changing within the, the, the context of mm. godliness? You know, it, it, it absolutely is, is not logical. So, uh, yeah, um, if Spock were here, he would agree with me, I think, on this. I just, it's completely illogical to, to, to tag a number and, and say, this is the quality of this wine. Yeah. Yeah. And I also have to agree with you in the sense that it, it's uh, a personal, uh, tasting wine is a personal thing as well. Um, that I think there are better made wines and, and poorer made wines, for sure, but... The experience of enjoying it uh, is something that that's very personal, and I think that if someone else says that it's you know the best wine in the world for them, it might certainly might not be for you. Yeah. Well, let's look at it this way. Let's look at it this way. The scoring system evolved out of a need uh, by the American consumer as we started to uh, uh, evolve as a drinking society, mm. right? We didn't know much about wine back in the the seventies and eighties, you know. Uh, so we needed someone to tell us. Or some entity to tell us what to drink, and what better way to do it than to simplify it down to just a a very simple thing, which is a, a number. Yeah. But now, obviously, uh, with the, the whole food and wine movement, um, and the rock star chefs and the sommeliers, and 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 this program, for instance, we're exposed to so many different things that it's it's really become not needed. I think. Uh, I think. Well, um, then, what do you think is the best way for our consumers to to learn about wine and uh, 
you know you can't you can't personally talk to every single one uh everyone who buys a bottle of of your wine no and i, I think I, that, I think that's the idea the best way if you could speak with the producer the person who made it who understands the the place where it's where it came from and how it's made but for someone who's trying to to learn about about wine and real wine and good wine what's that what do you think is the best way to do that well my honest opinion is to just drink more <laughs> you gain it from experience but um the the one thing i do want to point out is i i 100 wholeheartedly percent agree with wine writing i think wine writing is today's modern poetry um it's just simply the attachment of a number um mm. to that writing and in a sense the wine writers uh should feel much freer if they don't put a number because then it doesn't dismiss anything that they wrote about right if, if i wrote something really beautiful on a description of a wine or a place and try to create this context yeah but then I attach a number to it. That person's only going to think about that number. If you get rid of the number, it's actually a, a very beautiful piece of writing. Yeah. So I and, think and uh, the story that I hear time and time again, and I've experienced it multiple times, is having a uh, a wine that was scored really poorly, uh, or a vintage that that was scored really poorly, and then uh, years later you had you had a, a you know a great producer, and the wine ends up showing beautifully and ends up being a really good value maybe that is the maybe that is the uh the one good thing about scoring is that when a writer could be dismissive uh of uh you know of uh, a wine for whatever reason as a consumer maybe you can find some good values for it yeah that's that, that that's actually true um look i'll say this um our, our marketing has always been against the scoring system so i'm glad the scoring system was invented or else we wouldn't have any marketing would we <laughs> Um, there's also a lot of marketing that you guys have that, that come just from the uh, people tasting the wines. So I'm going to do that right now. Um, what, what do we have here? Uh, we have the, the uh, classic Hedges Family Estate blend. It's a blend uh, predominantly of Merlot and Cabernet, um, done within the context of the Red Mountain region, which is a hot, dusty, dry area with much cooler temperatures. So we're the, uh, the same latitude as the Loire Valley. So you'll see sort of this angularity to our wines, um, this sort of decisiveness about them. And the vintage you're drinking, I believe, is 2011, Mm -hmm. uh, which was a much cooler vintage. Uh, Some wineries uh, had a difficult time. And in fact, um, some wine writers dismissed the vintage, believe it or not. However, I don't believe that there are bad vintages or good vintages. I just believe that there are variable vintages, and each vintage tells a story. So this wine is going to tell you the story of a cool vintage within the framework of Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot. And I love this wine. I think that um, it doesn't have the ripe, dark fruit that you expect of maybe a New World Cabernet Sauvignon. It is, it's earthy, it's elegant, it's nuanced, it's very complex and spicy. Um, there's so much going on here, and uh, I, I, I really like it. I think um, I, it's hard for me to agree with you. I'm glad you like it. and and uh, Because if I ever tell you I agree with you on that, then I sound too much like a, like a, mm. uh, too much of a marketing guy, but it is what it is. And I think this wine does a very good job of telling a story and a cool vintage. Um, can I agree with you on, yes, the sort of the earthiness and all that? Absolutely. I think, uh, we try to make wines that have, um, actually I shouldn't say that we try to grow wines that have soul. The making of wine is, is done, um, naturally. Uh, my sister does a very good job of, of watching the fermentations and watching her lots like little children. She's a, 
She's uh, an amazing fermenter. You said that it's very hot on Red Mountain and also very cool. Is that uh, the daytime, nighttime difference because of the altitude? Yes, correct. Diurnal shifts in temperature. And um, there's been some uh, some debate lately. I mean, the conventional thinking has been that diurnal shift is is great because uh, it allows for a slow ripening, maintains acidity. Um, but lately, there have been some uh, some uh, uh, pings in the industry that maybe this is this is overplayed and diurnal shift isn't as important. How do, what do you feel about it? Well, what, what is not overplayed in this industry? You know, I mean, geez, I mean, the, the, the use of oak, I mean, the, you know, organic or biodynamic farming, everything is, is abused so much. Um, to tell you the truth, um, it, it is, again, it is what it is in our region. Uh, you can't fight it. It's mother nature. Um, I will tell you this. I'm going to put my biodynamic hat on, mm-hmm. and I like to use uh, the metaphor of the human body. You love the heat during the day, but when you want to go to sleep, it's nice when the air conditioning's on, isn't it? Yeah. So I, I look at grapes the exact same way. Um, you are what you eat also. So, you know, what you put into the vineyard um, also comes out, I think, in the wine too. And uh, that's helped us with our, with our biodynamic program. Well, the wine certainly is, uh, is bright, energetic, uh, has, has some good acidity. Um, in fact, my mouth is watering, which, you, you know, how often do you get that from... Uh, you know, from a, a West Coast Cabernet Sauvignon, so it's like a juicy, uh, delicious wine. And then what's the second one here um, in the kind of more Burgundian bottle with big red mountain on the label? Yes, yes. So, for instance, uh, this wine um, is higher up in the AVA mm-hmm. uh, on the slope, so the soil depths get uh, more shallow. Uh, so um, one could argue that the extremes of growing here are much more intense, and Syrah tends to uh, sort of uh, love this um this environment um it's a project that my mother created uh, uh when she became a chevalier de testevin she's and she's female so that was uh obviously she that was a good thing uh so she made a wine uh this wine as a as an homage not only to that but to her um her late great grandfather who was also a chevalier de testevin um it's done in a very uh beautifully savage style you'll you'll see a, a a pronouncement of yeastiness in the in the nose on this wine. Um, we don't call it Syrah because it's much easier to sell Red Mountain, especially from West Coast. Get uh, out of here! It's easier to sell Red Mountain than it is to sell Syrah. Oh, easily! Can't yeah, believe yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, and that's that's a big shift in thinking too. And when did that happen? That that Red Mountain has become something that is uh, recognizable in the market. Um, it's it's always sort of had this like mystique within the geek trade, uh, but. I think with some of the press that we've had with some of the Napa Valley people moving uh, up into our region, um, it's been easier to sell this wine, the Syrah, uh, by calling it Red Mountain. And obviously there's no difference uh, in the marketing between what the old world does and what this wine is. I think it's easier to, to market a geography than what's actually in the bottle. Yeah, It's, a, it's an automatic trademark <laughs> protected by the federal government. Now, I have to admit that the labels I'm looking at have a very old world feel to them. Um, even the, this Red Mountain uh, says, it, it, you know, that looks like it might be a bottle of like Northern Rhone Syrah, where you have the Appalachian is really prominent, and certainly there's some French in there, Cuvée, Marcel Dupont. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it was uh, <laughs> uh, is is that an idea that you have that you're you're looking towards the old world for for inspiration? Um, 
was the was was the the bull riding thing a a a, a rebellion against uh did, did you like did you grow up with a very very french minded household all the time i think i think if uh french people were exposed to the rodeo you'd see a lot of french rodeo stars <laughs> yeah <laughs> sponsored by sponsored by great burgundy and bordeaux houses um no the the, the label is is nothing more than just a a manifestation mm. of um Trying to promote geography over over the one who ferments and grows the wine. Yeah, I think tying yourself too much to a product, personally as a human, is, is not good because we all die. But the geography of the grapes continue on. So you always want to put, uh, I think, the the geography as as the as the rock star, not not the person. Oh, well, this is extraordinary. I really love this uh, the Syrah. And then going on to the uh, the last wine, a. Big mountain. You didn't have to bring a magnum of wine to our little show here. It's only made in magnum. It's only made in magnum. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I'm, I'm using the rest uh, in, in uh, various other venues throughout the day, so we'll, we'll be okay. We'll we'll just drink half the bottle. Okay. So is it? So the the magnum that we're looking at is the Le Au Cuvée, um, 2012. Is this the this is the first release of this wine, huh? This is the first release in this form. Uh, this really represents the old Red Mountain Reserve, mm-hmm. which we've been making since 1987. Um, there was a removal of that wine. Uh, when the vineyards became old enough, uh, all of the lots tasted amazing, and we couldn't distinguish between reserve anymore. When we started biodynamic farming, we noticed uh, differences between our biodynamic certified plots and the unbiodynamic lots. So now this reserve is back in full form and representing what we call a very, uh, well, it's a natural wine. It's uh, Demeter certified on the back label. You can see that some people talk about it, but they don't go through the certification. Uh, so this is, uh, this is a natural wine. Natural one wine, of the, a natural red mountain wine. A natural red mountain wine. What That's does correct. what does natural wine mean to you? It it it's it. That, there's no. Uh, I feel like there's no concrete definition of natural wine. But it's since since you you said the you know the n word here, so yeah, sure. Let's do it. It's a throwback to to the basics of winemaking, which means there really is no winemaking. There's mm-hmm. just managing. The, var- the, the vineyard is farmed, uh, obviously organic, but with biodynamics, you're, you're also treating it homeopathically in a sense. Um, and then once the, 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 the fruit comes into the cellar, basically nothing is done except for the movement of the fruit from one vessel to another. Everything is done naturally. Yeah. Everything that would have gone wrong with the product has already gone wrong with it, if anything's gone wrong at all. You so never know. Only, only mechanical processes have been done to the wine nothing chemical right so there's only only moving it from one place to another picking it and and, and that that's sort of it thing. that's it there's there's nothing else done there's no added sulfites there's no no anything so yeah maybe we made a magnum because since you know everybody talks about sulfites giving you a headache since there are none really in this wine you can drink an entire magnum by yourself and you'll be fine you, you could fine. still get a, a dehydration hangover you can do that, yeah. So do definitely drink a, a, a magnum of water as well. Uh, <laughs> uh, we all know what a hangover is like, but uh, you do get the benefits of the nice antioxidants. So when you transferred to biodynamics, did you notice a, a real change in the, the quality of the wines? Uh, Maybe not so much the quality, but the soul, the depth, um, and the ability to express not only geography, but mm-hmm. uh, vintage variation. And that is the story of wine where it comes from, from what time. And so this wine is, uh, 
Is it risky to make? Yeah, but we like that risk. We make highly inconsistent products in a positive note, meaning we appreciate vintage variation. And vintage it, will, will you be spreading the biodynamics to the other wines uh, in, the, in the Hedges portfolio and, and certainly the wines that you make yourself as well? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I think, it's, um, I think uh, my sister's done a, a beautiful job of, of uh, being able to manage this uh, uh, fermentation. Uh, yeah. And uh, the more comfortable she feels, the more comfortable her and I will progress forward with it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I have to say just kudos to you and your sister and, and uh, your whole family. Um, I, I've only known Hedges for uh, as long as we've had uh, La Picho, something that I, I first tasted when, when we first opened, so only uh, two or three years now. But uh, I have to say that the wines are, are delicious, and uh, it's a treat to, uh, to taste them anytime I get to, especially uh, this, this Leo Cuvée out of, out of Magnum. That's uh, really exciting. I'm going to leave this glass aside for a while because it's, uh, it, there's so much concentration and... and, and it, I, I, and uh, still very drinkable, but I feel like that's a, a quite age-worthy wine that that'll evolve in, in the glass for a little bit. I think um, we'll fill you up just a little more, and uh, I don't know when your next radio show is, but if it's in one week, yeah, um, I will put a guarantee that the wine will actually be seven days better. Wow! Yes, absolutely. I, you know what? Let's do that, and, and we'll report back about it. That would be excellent, awesome. uh, Christoph. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. This is—it's been a lot of fun. It's been great being here. Thank you. All right, enjoy, uh, enjoy New York, and uh, thanks to all of you for listening. This has been in the drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 